You knew your job was sensitive, maybe a bit dangerous, but nothing you can't manage. Until the day that someone tells you that if you're not careful, it could be deadly. When you try to raise your concerns with management, though, they don't just ignore you. They come after you. Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. This episode, we tell the story of Karen Silkwood, the nuclear power plant worker who took on one of the most powerful and dangerous industries in the United States in the name of public safety. As one of the first modern women whistleblowers, she's legendary. Her impact on worker safety in the nuclear power industry in particular cannot be understated. But her path to achieving her goals didn't go at all the way she planned. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When 26-year-old Karen Silkwood started working at a plutonium plant outside Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, in August 1972, it was meant to be a fresh start. Just a few weeks earlier, she had finally worked up the courage to leave her unhappy marriage. She and her husband, Bill, had eloped when they were just 19 years old, and that had been the high point of their relationship. He'd spent most of it throwing away money they didn't have and carrying on affairs, while Karen, who had excelled in school, was left at home to take care of their three young children. When they spoke about divorce, Bill said he would only do it if she gave him sole custody of the kids. As much as Karen didn't want to leave her children, she had finally reached her breaking point. She couldn't stay in the stifling marriage anymore. So she'd headed 80 miles north to Oklahoma City to find a job and get back on her feet. When she heard that the Kerr-McGee Corporation's nearby Cimarron River plutonium processing plant was hiring lab techs, Karen jumped at the chance. She'd always loved science and had been the only girl in her high school chemistry class. To have the chance to work in a scientific field, despite not having much experience, seemed like a dream. At the time, Kermagee was one of the most powerful energy corporations in the United States and a major employer in Oklahoma. Originally an oil company, it had expanded its mining and production of petrochemicals over the decades, getting into nuclear fuel in the wake of World War II. 
The company's founder, Robert Kerr, wasn't just a wealthy businessman, either. He had also spent decades in politics, first as the governor of Oklahoma, then as one of the state's senators, and had used his influence to enrich both himself and his company. Though he had died nearly a decade earlier, the Kerr-McGee Corporation continued to be a major player in the energy industry, holding a number of government contracts. In fact, the Cimarron plant, where Karen had just been hired, had been licensed by the U.S. government's Atomic Energy Commission, or AEC, to create fuel rods for nuclear reactors. The U.S. had only recently started opening nuclear power plants as an alternative, more environmentally friendly fuel source. When Karen was hired as a metallography laboratory technician, she didn't know much about nuclear reactors or fuel rods. But that wasn't uncommon. The majority of people who worked at the plant didn't have specialized skills. They were trained on the job to process plutonium, a radioactive metal element essentially created from uranium. It was the plant's responsibility to take nuclear reactor waste and turn it back into a plutonium and uranium powder. That powder was then compressed and fired into small, one-inch-long pellets, which were loaded into the long, thin fuel rods. Before being welded closed, the stainless steel rods were also packed with a gas cylinder, which would set off alarms if the rods started leaking. Once the rods had been checked and cleared, they'd be sent on to a nuclear reactor facility. Karen and her fellow lab techs were responsible for checking the process at two different points. First, they checked individual pellets for even plutonium distribution and to make sure that they weren't leaking radiation. Then, they checked the finished rods to verify that they were even, completely sealed, and safe to be used in a high-pressure reactor. It all seemed pretty straightforward. Sure, there were some annoying safety protocols, especially for the people handling the liquids and powders. Occasionally, an accident would happen, or someone would get some of the plutonium on them. They called it being hot. But then there were showers and special solutions to use to get the stuff off you, and it was fine. And in the labs where Karen worked, those kinds of incidents were pretty rare. Karen liked the work from the start. Having a job of her own was empowering, and she was fascinated by all the technology and science around nuclear fuel. Friendly and open, she quickly made friends with her colleagues and soon started dating one of them. Drew Stevens was just a few years younger than Karen and had been in a similarly unhappy marriage. Karen was so vibrant and fun and curious that Drew immediately fell for her. He moved in with her and her roommate shortly thereafter, while he and his wife were still finalizing their divorce. That autumn, the two spent nearly all their time together. Outside of work, Drew's obsession was cars, and he got Karen into them, too. He raced in autocross competitions and soon taught Karen to handle a car as well as he could. Before long, she was racing and even winning. But the honeymoon period of Karen's new life didn't last long. In November 1972, not long before she and Drew decided to put the brakes on their relationship, the workers at the Kermagee plant voted to go on strike. 
For a while, the local branch of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, or the OCAW, had felt that the plant wasn't treating its workers right. They wanted higher wages, more comprehensive training, and better health and safety provisions, and they felt that the plant wasn't listening to their concerns. Like most of the plant's workers, Karen hadn't really been worried about these issues. But because she was a union member, she went on strike. Unfortunately, the union had overestimated its power. The area around the plant had relatively limited employment opportunities. So Kerr McGee was able to immediately bring in untrained scabs to keep production going. As Christmas approached and winter wore on, striker after striker went back to work. But Karen didn't. In her time on the picket line, she learned more about the dangers of the materials they were working with. She heard stories of workers who died or been permanently maimed in accidents. Accidents caused by inadequate training and lax safety protocols. The more she learned, the crazier it seemed that Kerr McGee was now just sending new, equally untrained workers into the plant. Most of them were boys in their late teens and early 20s who knew even less than she had when she'd started. Karen was one of 20 strikers to stick it out until the end, but ultimately the union lost. When they went back to work in early 1973, the contract Kerr McGee gave its workers was even worse than before. Longer hours, less training, and even less money put into maintaining equipment and safety. Over the next year, Karen tried to keep her upbeat, hopeful attitude, but she struggled. She didn't get to see her kids as often as she'd like, and her relationship with Drew was on again, off again. She liked her job, but ever since the strike, she'd been unable to ignore that the plant was putting its workers at risk. Things got even worse in spring 1974, when the Kerr-McGee plant decided to increase production. From now on, the plant would run 24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter what. And employees had no choice but to work 12-hour shifts. As employee turnover increased, more and more untrained kids were hired in order to keep up the pace. Unsurprisingly, accidents became increasingly common. Several times over the next few months, fires, spills, and contaminations exposed workers to more plutonium than the Atomic Energy Commission, or AEC, deemed safe. Karen and her colleagues weren't happy about the slipping safety standards, but they couldn't do much more than complain. The AEC slapped Kerr-McGee on the wrist, but still, things didn't improve. Around the same time, Karen's mental health reached a low point. She was working nights and having trouble sleeping, which only compounded her unhappiness. Finally, she went to her doctor in May 1974 and told him she was depressed. Hoping to solve the problem by helping her sleep, the doctor prescribed a new drug called methaquilone, also known as quaaludes. Quaaludes were being used as doctor-approved sedatives and sleeping pills at the time. The pills helped with Karen's sleep, but neither she nor her doctor realized that they were also highly addictive. Within a matter of months, Karen was taking them far beyond the prescribed dosage. They no longer worked for her as sleeping pills, and instead she took them, as she told Drew, 
to keep her head together. Karen's sleep may have improved, but the situation at the plant had continued to deteriorate. On a hot Wednesday in July 1974, Karen was on the evening shift. Her duties for the day involved checking a batch of pellet powder for traces of metals other than plutonium and uranium. The task was done entirely in sealed glove boxes, so the technician never came in direct contact with the plutonium, and the powder never left its container. Hours after Karen and her two colleagues had wrapped up and gone home, the plant's health physics technicians did their routine check of the air sample filter papers for the room. These filter papers would show if the air had been contaminated with radioactivity at any point. To their surprise, the filters showed that the room's air had been contaminated during Karen's shift, but not during the shifts before or after hers. That didn't make any sense. If there had been a leak in the room, the air should have continued to be contaminated for more than one shift. Weirder still, when Karen and the two lab techs with whom she'd shared a shift were testing for radiation contamination, only Karen came back showing any. And even then, it was an insignificant amount. As far as the health physics team could tell, the filter was either an error or someone had been messing with them. It wasn't hard for workers to get a hold of the plutonium, so it was always possible that someone was just trying to cause trouble by throwing off the filter monitoring. Either way, Karen wasn't especially reassured. It seemed like yet another example of the plant's lax safety standards. The following week, Karen and two other employees were elected to the union's bargaining committee ahead of upcoming contract negotiations. The first thing they did was contact the main office of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union in Washington, D.C. They informed the union headquarters that they were concerned about health and safety standards at the Kerr-McGee plant and wanted the union's help and support. A meeting was set for late September in D.C. The union officials told Karen's team to bring as much specific, documented evidence as they could. Karen took her job seriously. For the next two months, she carried a notebook with her everywhere, writing down everything she saw, interviewing fellow workers, following up on contaminations. What she found horrified her. It was even worse than she'd realized. In addition to the spills and contamination incidents, the inadequate training and the health ventilation violations she also discovered that the plant was sometimes just dumping its radioactive waste, rather than following disposal protocols. When she and her team met with union officials in D.C. at the end of September, they were equally horrified. But they weren't surprised. These kinds of issues were happening at nuclear plants around the country. It helped, though, that Karen's team had taken such detailed notes. The officials suggested they present their testimony to the Atomic Energy Commission the following day to file a formal complaint and get a regulatory investigation going. There was no way the AEC could look the other way when people were being exposed to a radioactive substance that caused cancer. Karen thought she'd misheard the official. Cancer? She knew plutonium could be dangerous, but no one had ever said anything about cancer. 
In fact, signs at the plant even boldly stated that radiation was safe. On the contrary, the union official explained, breathing in contaminated air, ingesting plutonium, or coming into direct physical contact with it could result in cancer 20 or 30 years down the line. It was clearly just another case of bad safety protocols that the Kermagee plant hadn't told its employees just how much their lives could be at risk. At first, Karen wanted to cry. She'd been exposed to plutonium just two months earlier. But then she got angry. It wasn't right that Kerr-McGee was choosing to expose people to stuff that could kill them without warning them about the consequences. She wasn't going to let them get away with it. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. At the end of September 1974, 28-year-old Karen Silkwood had been working in a Kerr-McGee plutonium processing plant for two years. In a meeting with one of the heads of her union, she'd just learned for the first time that the radioactive material could cause cancer. She and her two fellow union reps had come to D.C. to talk about worker health and safety. But now Karen was angry. So she told the union official that it wasn't just health and safety issues that were a problem at the plant. In fact, while she was preparing for the trip, she'd discovered that the plant was tampering with quality control. The fuel rods that they were making for nuclear reactors, she'd noticed that they were signing off on ones that were faulty and changing their certifications in order to be able to sell them back to the power plants. She didn't know what the consequences would be of fuel rods that leaked or even broke while they were being used in a nuclear reactor, but it couldn't be good. The union official jumped on the information. This was exactly the kind of leverage the union needed to take on Kerr-McGee and fight for worker safety. Contract negotiations were due to start in early November, less than a month and a half away, they could take this story to the press, which would put the corporation in the hot seat and force them to make improvements to health and safety standards. But in order for that to work, they needed proof. And they needed to keep Kermagee unaware that they were investigating. Before the Oklahoma team left, the union official pulled Karen aside. 
He knew a journalist at the New York Times who would be interested in the story, but he'd need hard facts, numbers, dates, names, all of it. Karen had gotten a lot of details about the health and safety problems. Did she think she could also get concrete evidence that the plant was doctoring its quality control certifications and sending faulty fuel rods? Yes, Karen absolutely could. The union official warned her that she'd have to keep it quiet. Kermagee wouldn't like her digging around for proof that they were doing something wrong. If they found out, it would tank their entire contract negotiation strategy. In fact, just to be safe, she shouldn't even tell her two fellow union reps what she was doing. He suggested she communicate just with his assistant, a determined young man named Steve Wadka. Karen understood. She had more than a month to get the job done, and it would be easy enough. After all, she'd collected plenty of hard facts on worker health and safety failures before. One of the problems with the plant was how easy it was to go anywhere and take things without anyone checking. Karen wasn't worried about taking on one of the biggest corporations in the country, a major government contractor. She didn't care that by testifying to the AEC, She and her two fellow union reps were already causing trouble for Kerr-McGee. She had a chance to save lives, and that was all that mattered. It never occurred to her that that could be dangerous. As soon as she got back to Oklahoma, Karen got to work. She stayed late after her shifts to go through documents. She examined x-rays of the fuel rods and watched the welders. She studied the plutonium pellets and dropped in on pellet inspectors' shifts. She talked to every worker who would answer her questions and found excuses to look at paperwork in labs and offices she had no reason to be in. She even started to take files home in order to review them and kept those that would be prime evidence. She started to regularly call Steve Wadka in D.C. to keep him apprised of what she'd found. It was even worse than she'd originally thought. The x-rays of the fuel rods were being physically doctored to hide any defects so that they could pass inspection. Everything was being sent through to the nuclear power plant, no matter its quality. But Karen had also found something else disturbing. According to the plant's own records, 40 pounds of plutonium was missing. Either the plant's protocols and record-keeping were so lax that they'd lost the plutonium, or someone had stolen it. Either option was bad. Karen also got more outspoken about health and safety issues, all of which seemed to be getting worse. As a union rep, she intervened with supervisors when workers were exposed to plutonium. She made sure they requested all the available tests and knew about the dangers of radiation which the supervisors didn't like. Soon, her supervisors and fellow workers, many of whom weren't in the union, began to see Karen as disruptive. They felt she was nosy and outspoken, and her colleagues started to joke about her watching them and taking notes. But Karen had to stay focused. If she stopped to think about the fact that she was spending all of her time in a poorly regulated radiation factory, she wouldn't be able to keep going to the plant. Her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Drew, had recently quit the plant and encouraged her to do the same. 
His mental health had improved once he'd gotten out of there. Drew could tell that working there clearly stressed Karen out. She was becoming increasingly dependent on quaaludes and was losing weight. She was pale and anxious and didn't seem well. He didn't understand why she wouldn't just quit. Karen insisted that she had to stay at the plant at least until the contract negotiations were finished. The union was important, and she had a responsibility to the workers. After that, maybe she would quit. She didn't say anything about her investigation or the fact that she'd told Steve Wadka that she'd have all her evidence ready for November 13th, a week into the contract negotiations. But as October wore on, Karen's anxiety grew. She became increasingly paranoid, and her health continued to suffer. After a union meeting in the middle of the month, a friend from the plant expressed concern about her. Karen wrote it off as the side effects of a medication her doctor had prescribed for depression, but admitted she didn't feel well enough to drive home. A couple weeks later, Karen called her sister sobbing. She told her sister that someone was trying to do something to her. She refused to discuss it over the phone, saying it wasn't safe, and begged her sister to come visit. Her sister apologized. She couldn't leave her kids, but suggested that Karen come visit them for a while. Simultaneously at the plant, Karen and her fellow union reps felt they were being harassed and stymied by the supervisors. As the contract negotiations approached, they were reassigned to new areas, kept away from each other as much as possible, and overly criticized for their work and behavior. By early November, Karen decided she had to get out of the plant. Though she was still dependent upon quaaludes, her doctor had taken her off a couple of the medications she was on for a few days, and it had helped her clear her head. Drew was right. Maybe she would even move back to Texas to be closer to her family. Just another week or so, and she'd be done with her investigation. And then... On the afternoon of November 5th, 1974, something strange happened. Karen was working on grinding and polishing plutonium pellets in the sealed boxes in the metallography lab. The only way workers could handle the pellets was by putting their hands and arms into heavy-duty rubber gloves that were attached to the boxes. This prevented the boxes from ever being opened and releasing plutonium dust into the lab. In addition to these gloves, which went all the way up to Karen's shoulder, she was also wearing white coveralls and plastic gloves. At 5.30 p.m., Karen took a quick break. Before leaving the room, she used the monitor to check if her hands were contaminated. They weren't. An hour later, at 6.30 p.m., she stopped for another break. Again, she checked her hands. This time... The monitor said she was contaminated. A health physics technician came in with a radiation detector to check her. Karen's right arm and shoulder in her coveralls were registering 20,000 disintegrations per minute, 40 times the safe limit. In a decontamination room, Karen stripped down. Now, the right upper side of her body still registered as contaminated. Her wrist registered at 10,000 disintegrations per minute. 
Her nasal swab registered at 150 disintegrations, much less than the other readings, but it suggested that the plutonium had gotten into her lungs. While Karen showered in harsh chemicals and detergents, carefully outfitted technicians examined the lab where she'd been working. What they found confused them. First, there was no plutonium in the air. Then, as expected, they found that the gloves in the box Karen had been using were contaminated on the side she'd been touching. But the gloves didn't have a hole in them. The plutonium hadn't come from the pellets Karen had been handling, and it hadn't come from the air. How had it gotten there? The next morning, November 6th, Karen came in early. It was the first day of the union contract negotiations, and she refused to let herself be distracted by the weirdness of the previous evening. She was excited and wanted to get some paperwork done before the negotiations started at 9 a.m. At 8.50 a.m., she wrapped up in the lab and checked herself on the monitor for plutonium contamination. To her surprise, her right arm was contaminated. Even worse, washing with soap and water didn't seem to make a difference. As the health physics director checked her out, Karen fought to stay calm. She couldn't be late for the first negotiation meeting, but the director couldn't let her go if she might contaminate other people. Finally, he decided that if the plutonium wasn't washing off, it probably was deep enough in her pores that she wouldn't spread it around. But he insisted that she come back for further decontamination before going home for the day. When she came back, though, she was registering higher than before, 5,000 disintegrations per minute. And the director was finding radiation across the right side of her arm, neck, and face. After another chemical shower, her skin rubbed raw, Karen's nasal smear was reading even higher than the day before. Now Karen started to freak out. This didn't make any sense. She hadn't handled any plutonium that day, and she'd barely been in the lab. The only thing she could think was that it was already in her lungs, and it was coming back out. That night, she called a doctor she'd met through the union officials, sobbing. She didn't want to die of cancer. She didn't know what was happening. She didn't know what to do. Then she called Drew and begged him to come spend the night with her. She didn't want to be alone. The next morning, November 7th, when Karen arrived at the plant, her nasal smear results went through the roof, around 45,000 disintegrations per minute. The fecal and urine samples she'd done at home were almost as high. Wherever she was getting contaminated, it wasn't at work. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen. 
listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Concerned with the unusually high levels of radiation in Karen's system, the Kerr-McGee Plant's health physics director took Karen and a team of his staff to the apartment she shared with a fellow plant worker. They had checked her car and her locker, both of which had come back clean. Maybe something in her home was somehow contaminated. In the kitchen and bathroom, the health physics team got insanely high radioactive readings. The stove alone was at 25,000 disintegrations per minute. The toilet seat cover was at 100,000. And the wrapper on a package of bologna and cheese in the refrigerator was at a shocking 400,000 disintegrations per minute. The director was horrified. He asked Karen if anyone had eaten the bologna and cheese. She didn't think so. Not since she'd touched the package that morning, anyway. The only explanation she could think of for any of it was that she'd spilled some urine from her sample kit on the floor that morning. She had wiped it up with a paper towel and flushed it down the toilet. While she was in the kitchen, she had grabbed the bologna and cheese package so she wouldn't forget to make a sandwich. Carrying it with her, she'd set it on top of the closed toilet seat while she finished getting ready for the day. Then, as she was going to make the sandwich, she'd remembered that she still had lunch at work from the day before and put the package back in the fridge. That explained the toilet seat and the bologna package. But it didn't really explain anything else. Stranger still was the discovery that day that the plutonium found in Karen's urine sample from the morning was insoluble. That meant that it couldn't have passed through her body at all. It had been added to her urine after the fact. When the Kerr-McGee team finally let Karen go, she drove to a payphone and called Steve Wadka in D.C. sobbing. She told him she was afraid that someone had come into her apartment and put plutonium on the food in her refrigerator. It might even be Kerr-McGee trying to shut her up or giving themselves an excuse to search her apartment. All Karen knew was she didn't want to die. The next day, Steve flew into town, along with two investigators from the Atomic Energy Commission. Clearly, something was going on at this plant that needed to be looked into. Steve also wanted to make sure that he was on hand to get Karen's evidence about the quality control issues as soon as she had it. The journalist from the New York Times would be flying in in just a few days. Karen promised that she wouldn't let even this incident delay things. The AEC had other plans, though. Their doctor's tests and analyses suggested that Karen had somehow ingested plutonium, which was incredibly dangerous. They wanted to send Karen, Drew, and her roommate to Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory in New Mexico for a full review of their plutonium exposure. The technology available in Los Alamos was the best in the country. On November 10th, 1974, the three flew to Albuquerque and drove out to Los Alamos, arriving in the evening. 
Over the next day or two, the doctors did several readings on them. Drew and Karen's roommate had a tiny amount of plutonium contamination, but it was essentially negligible. Karen had six to eight nanocuries of plutonium in her lungs. That's about half of what the AEC at the time said was the safe amount for a person to have in their lungs. Still, Karen was concerned that she would die of radiation poisoning, or develop cancer, or not be able to have more children. The doctor reassured her that she would likely be fine. He had seen plenty of workers at Los Alamos with higher amounts in their bodies who hadn't developed any problems. Karen didn't have a choice but to trust him. Still, she worried about contaminating other people and refused to kiss Drew. The three flew back to Oklahoma City on the night of November 12th. The union contract negotiations were resuming again in the morning. Karen was also supposed to hand over the evidence she'd gathered to Steve and the New York Times journalist. By now, she'd told Drew a little bit about what she'd been working on, and he'd agreed to help with the meeting. These were the last dealings she'd have to have with Kermagee. Then she could quit and leave. The negotiations on November 13th didn't go well. But that wasn't entirely unexpected. After they finished, at 5.30 p.m., Karen drove one of her fellow union reps to a nearby diner, where they briefed union members on how the negotiations were going, or how they weren't going, in this case. After the meeting, around 7 p.m., a couple of Karen's colleagues offered to drive her home. She seemed anxious and scared, and they all knew she'd been through a lot the last week. But Karen turned them down. She had somewhere to be. Right about the same time, Drew would be picking up Steve and the New York Times reporter at the Oklahoma City airport. Karen had an hour to drive the 30 miles into the city to meet them at the Northwest Holiday Inn, though she figured she'd be a little late. Before she left the meeting, though, Karen pulled aside one of her close friends, a woman she hadn't seen since before the incident the week before. She started to cry as she told her friend that it seemed like someone had tried to contaminate her. Now she had plutonium in her lungs. As her friend tried to comfort her, Karen admitted that there was only one thing that gave her any consolation at the moment. She showed her friend a manila folder and a notebook that she was holding. In the folder was proof that Kerr McGee was falsifying records, and she was going to give it to a New York Times reporter. The plant wasn't going to get away with the way it treated workers anymore. A few minutes later, Karen got in her white Honda and drove off down the highway, heading towards Oklahoma City. An hour and a half later, around 8.30 p.m., at the Northwest Holiday Inn, Drew, Steve, and the reporter were anxiously waiting for Karen. Even if she'd left the meeting late, Karen should be there by now. Finally, Steve couldn't wait anymore. He called one of the other union reps. Did he know where Karen was? The other man had just heard from the police. Karen had been in a car accident. She had been dead when the ambulance arrived. After the fact... Police and investigators worked out that Karen had been just seven miles into her journey when she'd swerved her car to the left side of the road. 
She'd gone straight for about 240 feet before hitting a cement culvert and slamming head-on into the wall opposite. She likely died on impact. At the time, the police assumed she was drunk or had fallen asleep. Later, they blamed the high amount of quaaludes in her system. But Karen had been dependent upon quaaludes for months and had had no alcohol to drink and hadn't seemed to be tired to anyone at the union meeting. Racing experts, including Drew, argued that the driving pattern suggested she'd maneuvered the car across the road because someone was chasing and harassing her. Karen knew how to handle a car and could execute quick maneuvers. A fresh-looking dent in one of the rear bumpers was initially explained as the result of having to tow the smashed car back onto the highway. But the man who drove the tow truck swore the dent was already there, and the repair shop suggested the paint in the dent indicated Karen had been rear-ended by another car. When the police arrived, the first officer on the scene claimed that there were papers and photos scattered everywhere. He collected them and put them in a manila folder he found there, which he tossed on the seat of Karen's car. Later, when Drew collected Karen's belongings from the repair shop where the car was towed, the folder was nowhere to be found. The article for which Karen had collected all her research was never able to be published. However, her death thrust both Kermagee and the plant into the spotlight. Federal investigations were soon launched into the plant's safety standards, All of the health and safety issues that Karen had been concerned about became evident. Even more plutonium was found to be missing than Karen had suspected. Kermagee was forced to close the plant entirely a year later, in December 1975. The corporation spent the next 20 years working to decontaminate the site. Several years later, Karen's parents and children sued Kermagee for negligence. They were awarded $10 million in punitive damages. After several appeals, Kermagee ultimately settled with the family in 1986 for $1.38 million. The high-profile nature of Karen's death and the subsequent court cases raised awareness of the dangers and poor safety standards in nuclear facilities. Under public pressure, other plants and companies improved their conditions and training, as Karen had always wanted. As for Karen herself, we'll never know the truth of what happened. In court, Kermagee lawyers alleged that she poisoned herself with plutonium in order to embarrass the plant. Her friends and family claimed she would never do that. Further investigations into her death have come up with little hard evidence. That hasn't stopped conspiracy theories from spreading. In more recent years, her children have suggested that someone may have been trying to scare her rather than actually kill her, that her death was, in fact, an accident. Indeed, if her death was intentional, it certainly backfired in the attention it brought to the plant. Whatever happened, the sad truth is that Karen's death and the subsequent advocacy of her friends and family helped bring about the changes she had campaigned for. Training and safety protections for nuclear plant workers dramatically increased in the years to come. Education about the dangers of radiation has only improved. 
And though it continued to be a powerful company, Kerr-McGee's reputation took a hit it never fully recovered from. It's just a shame that Karen didn't get to live to see these changes herself. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Karen Silkwood, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Killing of Karen Silkwood by Richard Rashka extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mix mastered and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. <laughs>